Welcome back to the Major Journey Podcast. Today's guest has been a cannabis attorney for over eight years. His experience ranges from litigating criminal charges to advising a multinational public company as the head of legal and compliance. He currently provides general counsel services to cannabis businesses and ancillary service providers across California, Massachusetts, and New York. Without further ado, Ryan Cocott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. Appreciate yeah, it. Man. I'm excited to have you here. Um, you've got an interesting, interesting background. So I would love to kick it off just by learning a little bit about how you actually got into the cannabis space um, and maybe even what you were doing before that and, and kind of how that brought you to where, where you are today. So how far back do you want me to go? Do you want me to go pre-law school or law school? I can give you the whole shabam if you want. It's interesting. Let's go pre-law school. Well, it kind of gives a little context, I guess, um, in terms cool. of how this kind of came to be. I was actually born and raised in Massachusetts, went to UMass Amherst for um, undergrad, and then kind of on a whim came out to California. And that's why it's kind of funny that, you know, it's almost like the butterfly effect type conversations in terms of the, the decisions that you make earlier in life. And I, I, you know, I initially had my deposit down at Suffolk Law School in Boston, um, and then was also considering Marquette in Wisconsin, and then McGeorge in Sacramento, which is where I eventually went. Um, and the calculus basically came down to the fact that Marquette's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, Suffolk is obviously in Boston, both much colder, and I was kind of uh, ready to get out of that. I'd only been to California, I think, once on a layover in San Francisco on the way to Vegas from Massachusetts. So it's just interesting kind of how things work out. Again, I um, had I gone to school in Boston, had I gone to school in Wisconsin, I don't know that I would have ended up in cannabis, to be honest with you. Um, I, you know, in law school, I was working for the public defender's office as an intern in Sacramento County doing criminal cases, obviously. And that was really... I was like dead set in law school that I was going to be a criminal trial attorney. And that's really what I did for the the bulk of the first half of my career was basically just cranking out trials um, in Sacramento. And that's actually how the cannabis end of things um, kind of came to be, I guess. I was representing a good amount of Prop 215 um, companies, which Prop 215 for reference for listeners was the medical regime or still is the medical regime to some extent in California. Um, and when the law changed in 2016 and allowed for adult use licensure, a lot of those same clients ended up wanting to, you know, make that transition and add the adult use license to their arsenal. Um, and that resulted in me doing more transactional business work. And I ended up, as you mentioned uh, in the intro, ended up going in-house for a startup company that eventually went public and operated in, in, in multiple countries. So I've gone from, uh, it's kind of a unique transition in, in most circumstances, like you're either doing that transactional type of work or you're doing trial work. I've kind of uh, done both to some extent, you know, over the last 10 years or so, or nine years, I guess, technically this December. Yeah. Congrats on that, by the way, it takes, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of strength and a lot of resilience to make it that long in cannabis, as I'm sure you've probably seen and, and felt along the way. Well, people always like say, like, is it more stressful to do transactional work or is it more stressful to be in, you know, in trial? And I always say it's different types of stress, I guess, is the best way of looking at it. Um, I miss being in court. Like, I'm kind of a social butterfly and I miss that end of it. But you still, you know, you get that same feel, I would say, even just working with people. And a lot of my clients 
that I have on the transactional end of things, which is like 99% of what I do now are like family to me too. So I've liked, I mean, whereas with the criminal cases, like the conversation was, I hope I never hear from you again after this, obviously. Right. I like the dynamic of being able to work with the same client for years on end, which you don't for good reason, or you hope you don't get repeat customers and the criminal end of things. So that's kind of a cool difference, I would say. Yeah, that's super interesting. So tell us a little bit about, I'm interested to learn about Cocot Law, which is your firm. What kind, What exactly are you mostly focused on in terms of helping clients out, helping businesses out, brands out? Um, on the legal and, and compliance side of things? I take criminal cases like once in a blue moon. I'm just wrapping up a case uh, here locally in Northern California that was a mixture of criminal charges and asset forfeiture where assets were seized re uh, related to criminal charges. Basically, the DA, you know, in those cases is saying these assets are related to this crime and therefore you shouldn't be able to keep them, I guess is the easiest way to look at it. That case has been going on for like over three years pre-COVID and be because of COVID in part and because it's you're dealing with um, a denomination of civil litigation, everything just takes forever, unfortunately. So that's just about done. And I say that to make the point that 99.9% .9 of, of the work I do is just transactional work. Cool. So, um, you know, when you're in-house, you're kind of doing everything under the sun, be it contracts, corporate work, compliance. And compliance is really my first love as far as doing work within cannabis. Um, I would say the, the majority of what I do for clients now is a mixture of contract, corporate work, and compliance. You know, like anytime you do corporate work, anytime you write a contract in this industry, you have to know the compliance end of it because there's so many um, kind of mind or pitfalls that you can run into when you're working a transaction, because so often when you work a deal, it's triggering compliance obligations like disclosures and this and that, you know, triggered by that relationship that you're creating with that contract. Um, so, for example, I do a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And obviously, anytime you're adding like a new owner to a business, you're triggering potentially ownership disclosures as well as financial interest disclosures and that sort of thing. So, I do a lot of transactional work, which secondarily ends up being compliance work. And I also, um, you know, handle just traditional compliance questions, less so these days. I think, you know, maybe it's a California thing more so than like the New Yorks of the world. Massachusetts, you could say the same thing for. Um, a lot of my clients have gotten into like a pretty good spot, you know, in terms of compliance. And as much as I love auditing compliance programs and the whole nine yards and creating compliance programs, like I have one client, for example, who's been in business for well over 10, if not 20 years legally as well, maybe not 20, at least 10 years. And as much as I'd be more than happy to help them with their compliance, you kind of have to ask yourself, this person has been operating that long successfully for that many you know, years, why even touch it? So um, it's just kind of a, a mixed mix bag of work of transactional work these days on a day-to-day -day basis. That's so interesting. So have you, I'm curious, as, as the rollout of adult use has, has grown over the years, have you noticed, um, kind of like a different need or like the, of the, the needs within compliance and, and M&A kind of evolve over time because of the evolving landscape of the industry and sort of the, the legal foundations behind it? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the comparison between like California and New York is a perfect way of looking at the differences. You know, the differences as far as the need for services, market to market. In New York right now, people are just trying to make their way through the licensing and application process, which has been a mess in New York mm. in terms of, you know, requirements being changed and or the interpretation, I guess, of, of requirements being changed along the way. Whereas now in California, if I get a call from a, an existing California business or if I get a California related call, it's usually from an existing business that's kind of been around a little bit longer i think when a state first opens up naturally what you're going to get more so is people wanting to get um their licenses and, and help with application work um and the like so i think a lot of the work that i'm doing now is really more so with existing businesses that i would say have been in business between you know three to ten years at this point in california whereas if i get a call for new york it's more likely than not going to be um you know, a group or individuals just looking to get a license just by virtue of the fact that it's a younger market. Although I think New York's had medical for a decent period of time, but those calls are uh, less and less by volume than people just trying to get started up. Interesting. And I, so to, uh, going back a little bit to um, to kind of how your, your journey and career in cannabis sort of evolved, uh, it seemed like it kind of happened super organically and it kind of just came to you and then you leaned into it. Um, I'm curious, over the years, what what do you feel like as a subject matter expert, what do you feel like has really helped you the most in establishing your brand, your reputation, and sort of helping you, you know, grow and build and and build that name for yourself and and having that that reputation to do what you do and, and what you specialize in? I, I think it's a combination of organic social content and reps. And actually in the reverse order of that reps, as far as doing the work mm. so that you are able to put out organic social content that in fact, um, resonates with people. It was kind of in 2016, I had a bet with my sister, who's a psychologist on the East coast who could come up with the, who could get more Instagram followers. Right. So we started kind of going toe to toe on that. And that's what really kind of drove me to post on Instagram as far mm -hmm. as I think it was. In 2016, just so happened to also be when Prop 64 passed in, in California and dominoes began to fall, fall after that as well in other states like Massachusetts. Um, but, you know, going in-house, again, making, and this is why I kind of wanted to give the context that I did in terms of the criminal work I did. You know, in most circumstances, I would not recommend you go call a criminal defense attorney to do your business license application for cannabis. Mm. It's a weird transition. So having come from that background, I needed the reps as far as doing the transactional work and going in-house in conjunction with having people within my network that were essentially mentors getting me through some of the, the learning curve because it really might as well just, it's like going from being a heart surgeon to being a brain surgeon. They're just too mm. very, maybe not to that extent. I, I got you though. <laughs> but It's very dra uh, drastically different. We'll, yeah, we'll call yeah, it just, that. No, I don't mean to go too crazy with it, but uh but yeah, the, the reps of doing the work, you know, like it's like a, a 19 year old kid wanting to be a life coach, you know, like that's not going to work out very well. Like right. you need to actually get the reps in um, and actually know what you're talking about. And I'm not saying you have to be Perry Mason or be the best attorney out there. But I, I think especially when you're talking about organic content, I think people can tell pretty quick. 
-hmm. whether or not you're kind of faking it until you make it or if you really know your stuff. So um, while preserving attorney-client privilege and confidentiality, I would just try to, and I still do, um, try to talk about things that I experienced and issues that I worked through um, as opposed to just like regurgitating like what the regulations say, which has its value, especially like in an earlier, newer market like New York. I think there's a ton of value in that. And that's and that's actually kind of the indicative of like the progression of my content with California. In 2016, when the law first changed, a lot of my content was like, this is what the regs say almost, because I think it's a matter of like understanding the audience need at that point in time. So like, if you're really trying to rake in clients from New York, I, I think you do need to focus on the basics of what the regulations are saying. Whereas in a more mature audience in terms of this California being around longer, mm -hmm. you can get into the more nuance, like talking about m because that's more relevant, that sort of thing. So um, a lot of my, I built my entire practice for cannabis on Instagram. I always tell people, um, I think I've tried like, you know, Google ads have like, they narrowed down their local search at one point and you could like pick your practice area and stuff, but they didn't, it wasn't, it was very, very non-specific and it didn't really work. I think I put like a couple hundred bucks into it, which I bring up to make the point that I've really, I've never like paid for ads or anything. It's all really just been organic content. And I, I think the same reps that you need to get in like, the actual work to be able to talk about it on social media, the same thing for social media. Like it's less so about like one piece of content, at least for my personal journey, if you want to call it that it's less about like one content piece going viral and more just consistently posting. I think, especially at the same time of day across a long period of time that people just um, expect it, I guess, to some mm -hmm. extent. So, yeah. I'm curious, have you have you uh, experimented a little bit with LinkedIn? I know you said Instagram worked very well for you, but have you tried LinkedIn? Yeah, no, I, I have. I think I've had more success in terms of like direct clients coming in from Instagram because I just think more of the industry is native to Instagram at this point in time, which is kind of ironic with how archaic Instagram's like guidelines are in terms of kicking mm -hmm. people off, but we can, we can save that for another podcast. Um, I've had... Um, it, like for the I'm a Forbes contributor now, and I found LinkedIn Congratulations. super helpful. Yeah, thank you. Um, super helpful for like finding sources. You know what I mean? Um, and you you do PR stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Just for, for your business. So I I like if I was a PR person tomorrow, and I'm obviously still very new to the writing end of it. To me, like what's compelling to me is if someone writes an article on LinkedIn and I read that article, I'm like, oh, this person really knows what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, because sometimes I get these pitches from people just like cold emails from like, you know, to my email. And it'll, it really is just kind of not even in like my way of my wheelhouse in terms of like what I write about. Mm -hmm. But LinkedIn has been super effective for me in identifying sources across the country for legal compliance business related articles. I, I think that like, I always tell people there's really like, it's like a, it's almost like investing in an index fund to do content. Like there's like, it Ooh. compounds, you know what I mean? Cause the, the posts stick around and like, I really do think it has more of that authority effect LinkedIn does than maybe an Instagram. And I guess you can have the same effect on Instagram as well, but I've, I've used it more so on that end of things, LinkedIn than, uh, than I have with Instagram, I would say. 
I think I'm going to have to take that line. I'll, I'll copyright it for you or we'll, we'll do whatever to get you some royalties on whatever it brings <laughs> in. But investing in, in content is like investing in an index fund. I like that a lot. Yeah, no, that's what it reminds me of. And it's just, I don't know. And you know what I find too, and not to get like too down the SEO rabbit hole. I think like if you have your LinkedIn profile set up correctly, I think you can, it can be searched. So like, I really think people should be, um, cause I've looked into all this stuff just by virtue of having my own firm, like you eat what you kill, you know, mm-hmm. in large part. So you got to figure this stuff out, but from an SEO perspective, I think your LinkedIn profile could very well, like depending on where your website ranks, mm-hmm. could be one of your higher ranking pages, your link. So I think it's really important and you don't want to do any like black hat, like keyword stuffing or anything like that. But I think you really should optimize your LinkedIn profile for what you want to be found for, even if it's not native to, to LinkedIn, it feels like that in and of itself within Google is important. And I bring that up because I will search for people like in specific um, areas of expertise, for example, when I'm like writing an article and want to find a source, like I'm much more um, and that to be very clear, like I, I think there's a lot of merit to reaching out to people, but um, like, for example, I like, if I receive a pitch from someone and it's it's um, referencing someone as a source who I've already read on LinkedIn and I know that that person knows their stuff, right. I'm like a thousand times more likely to go um, to, you know, to ultimately to reach out to that person. And I, I would think from like a PR perspective, it's almost like a similar conversation with SEO, like an SEO firm can help you optimize your articles, but like in large part, and maybe this is different with AI and stuff now, but mm-hmm. in large part, like you got to give them content. You know what I mean? Like, and I, that, those little things I think um, are important. I'm kind of getting off on a tangent now, but um, I, I I think since we've set up this podcast, I, my one month year old has come along and I'm, I'm pretty short on sleep. So forgive me if I'm uh, getting too off topic, but I'm, no, you are no, that's so that's awesome, man. And and great observations too. And I think that's super important for for people to realize. I and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm also picking up from what you're what you were mentioning was there's really no I think a lot of us, especially with the internet and social media, we're always looking for that. Okay, what's that silver bullet? What's that hack? What are the three steps to boom? Right. But there's really no boom. There's no one silver bullet that will do it all for you. And so just consistently hitting the pavement, layering that foundation brick by brick by brick every single day, showing up and building that that reputation, that brand, that credibility, that authority, that trust. It's something that I almost feel like you need time, but you need to be do- using your time wisely, but you need that period of one years, two years, three years to really help solidify that so that people like yourself or others, when they come across your name, they immediately see, oh, wow, there's a lot of substance here versus to your point earlier, this isn't even relevant to me. Why would I engage with this person or this company or this brand? Yeah. And I, you know, I was a personal trainer about 20 pounds ago and I can tell you like, it's crazy how many similarities there are, I think with like marketing and content and stuff. It just, you know, at their, there are different approaches to like, if you want to lose some weight or put on some muscle, there are different approaches to get there, but by and large, it's just consistency. Um, and I, I think at least, especially on LinkedIn and even on Instagram, but I, I, 
social media in general, I think people underestimate when you're consistent, you get a better idea of like who that person is. Like, mm -hmm. it's very rare that I meet someone who is completely different. Well, I guess it's not completely fair, but by and large, I would say like, if someone posts consistently on LinkedIn, I feel like I know that person, you know, mm -hmm. more so than I guess most people would expect, you know, like they're, it's totally agree. you know what I mean? So I think that's important because that's what makes you, you. And if you, like for, and I can, I'm a perfect kind of case study in this because I've chilled with posting over the last probably three months, just dealing with my girlfriend's pregnancy and my baby coming the whole nine yards. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. So I, you know, and you can, you can feel that like the calls slowing down and that sort of thing, which is kind of needed anyways, to be honest with you, to, to focus on being a dad. But I think it's important, you know, and I, I think it's, people get so like worked up about like what to post about when if you just like I have like my iPhone notes open like every two seconds because I'm just writing things down about what I want to maybe write about at some point because it, stuff happens during the day that would be interesting to people that you might not find interesting because it's day in day out stuff for you but I think that's where the magic is with the content end of things personally yeah and I, I also think so you brought up an interesting thing too, where you said, you know, one thing may be interesting to somebody, but not to somebody else, or you may think that, but for you, especially as a subject matter expert for you, what happens on a Tuesday is just, okay, cool. Typical Tuesday, nothing, nothing new in, in the world of Ryan, but to somebody like myself who doesn't live and breathe what you do, that could be really interesting. Or to somebody who's trying to get more information about it, that could be really interesting. So it's funny how sometimes we get a little numb to our day to day and the, the, the things that we see or the conversations we have or the, the problems that we encounter that we then have to go in and solve for. Um, so have, I, I forgot who it was, but somebody mentioned that to me where, you know, what's, what's boring to you could actually be very interesting to somebody else because it's just on repeat for you. Cause it's so ingrained in your, your day to day. So I just wanted to, you know, kind of highlight that. And I thought what you said there was, was super spot on. Yeah, and to be fair, I'm sure I'm regurgitating what I heard because I've, I've heard people like put it as like right to you three or four years ago or, or when you first started at something. And I think that's really good advice. Like, Jesus, I, I think about it's interesting. Like if you were to link, look at LinkedIn in 2016 versus now, like there were not cannabis lawyers and whatnot. Everybody. And what's even funnier to me is like there's people that have been doing this, like fighting this fight for longer than I've been alive. So I, that's, they probably laugh their asses off at me in the same vein. And not that I'm laughing about at, at anybody, but I'm just making the point that like, if the content that existed today existed back then, it would have been an easier journey, you know, but at that point in time, we were kind of just figuring it out as we went, whereas there's a ton of great resources now. And I, I think, if I try to like, again, I'm kind of been slow with content lately, just dealing with the baby, obviously, but I kind of try to put myself back in those shoes as far as like first trying to figure this all out and trying to not take, especially being in-house and being exposed to so many different practice areas. Um, I try to just think of it that way. But even I posted earlier this week about like mergers and acquisitions about, you know, like when you're, if you're buying into a cannabis company, like I think the knee-jerk reaction to people that handle M&A, and I've handled dozens of cannabis-specific transactions at this point, is to just send over like your canned list of like 15 pages worth of due diligence requests. Um, and if you've worked in cannabis long enough, let's be real, and I mean this in the most loving way, 
you know, it's not always the most organized on the back end, just depending on what you're getting yourself into. And I think you just like that's the human element to this sort of transaction that you kind of lose someone. So as far as just sending a bulk 15 page email and hoping you get back what you asked for, then I had suggested just ask for application materials, you know, as far as at the state and local level, certainly not going to give you everything you need by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a good like momentum builder. And I think you only come up with a method to my own horn, like this is such great information or anything, but I think you come up with those sorts of tips by just doing it. Whereas the, like, if I'm doing my first M&A transaction, I want to write it on LinkedIn, I'm going to find a due diligence request list and say, you should request X, Y, Z, you know, as opposed to like, this is how it's that you're going to actually get the transaction to the finish line, you know? And I think that distinction, I think is the different, what in some, in some way or another, depending on the market you're in, will, will kind of distinguish the content, or at least that's how I've experienced it to this point. Yeah, no, spot on, man. I, I totally agree with you. Um, one last question, and then I'll, I'll let you go. But having worked with dozens of, of different businesses, uh, from your perspective, what would you say is a common denominator that you see among some of the more successful businesses that end up going places and, and having a strong foundation of longevity ahead of them versus the ones that get in and then quickly crumble? Oh, that's an easy one. It's, we've already answered it. It's reps. It's reps. I, you know, like it's so funny to me. People, I think outside looking in, think that cannabis is like glamorous. And don't get me wrong, like working with cannabis is a blast. I love every second. I love most seconds of it. Most, right? yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, I work with some pretty well established brands and they're by far the hardest working people I know. You know what I mean? Like, we're talking like at the farm at 6 a.m., 7 a.m., whatever, on a Sunday. Like, you know, what you see on Instagram is literally like as far as like the, the fun parts that that'll be posted by brands is only, and I can only speak for the brands that I work with, obviously. But like as far as my clients, what you the cool stuff you see is like it's like the, you know, the iceberg meme you'll see yeah. as far as just the top. These guys works and gals work so hard and far like it's not especially like cultivation man it, that's it's not necessarily like a glamorous thing and you have people doing um multiple jobs and really just grinding and i as cliche as it sounds like i don't you know i guess you could get lucky you know and just have like a viral product or something but like i really think that people underestimate the amount of work it goes into an industry in when you think about it, it makes sense just with how, you know, the restrictions we have, whether it be taxes, 280E, um, just the regulatory environment. Like, if you're really serious about doing, I mean, I would only start a cannabis business if you are serious about doing it. And serious means reps and time. And there's a direct correlation from what I've seen with my clients. The hardest working clients I have are by far the most successful clients, which are, you know, pretty consistently tends to be the case. Interesting. Yeah. No, it's it's so true. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before before it just crumbles. Well, it's the same conversation too, whether you're talking about marketing, whether you're talking about lifting weights, whatever. Like everybody wants Great that analogy. bullet, you know. And I don't mean to take away from like, you know, you need to I guess in addition to hard work, I'll give a more specific um answer than that. 
it's being in tune with the community in the industry. You know what I mean? Like, I think you have to have a good, like, it can't just be suits. Um, I think you have to have, and this could be the same person, but I think you have to have a good balance between understanding the industry and the culture and the business side of it. I think my clients that fit both those bills, which is a, it's tough Mm -hmm. or supplement what they, you know, the skills they don't have with a partner are the ones that are successful as well. I mean, that's a more specific example I can give you. I think in the, in the companies that I have seen, not necessarily represented, but just know enough about what's going on internally that have not done well. It's like one side of the brain. It feels like where we were either too business focused or, I mean, I don't know that you can necessarily be too community focused, but maybe that just not focused enough about on business fundamentals, I guess. That's, I think, uh, a gap. Got to Yeah. Cause you've got to turn a profit or you got to figure out a way to generate revenue at some point, some way. So I totally agree with you. Well, and in an industry that you can't take typical business that like deductions, on your taxes i mean it's even yeah. more so like you know like i i get the whole like chad thing and then it cracks me up but you know at a certain point like you do you have to have that discipline to, to your point to make sure you are turning a profit um or at least keeping your head above water and i think having uh the balance within your team or within an, an individual is what um really separates people for sure yeah totally Totally. Well, Brian, uh, thank you so much just for jumping on the show, uh, spending some time with us here today and, and chatting, chopping it up, dropping your insights, dropping some gems for us uh, really across the board from legal compliance to social media, to marketing, to brand awareness, all this good stuff. So just want to say thank you again uh, for folks who want to connect with you or learn more about you and, and your work. What's the best way for them to do so? I'm probably either Instagram or Instagram or LinkedIn. And my last name is K-O-C-O-T and it's Ryan with an R. People always think I say Brian with a B because I'm nasally over here, but uh, that's usually the easiest way. And my email and all that good stuff is on, on those pages. So that's the best bet. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Major Journey Podcast. That'll do it for this week and we will catch you all next time. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.